And uh, as I mentioned, we're going to watch a short video, about five minutes long, a Bible project. But before we do that, um, a theme is uh, sacred places. Uh, we looked at why heaven. We looked at why earth. Um, we're going to look at why the new heaven, new earth this morning in the Christmas story. You know, if you were to Google, not Google, but put in a Bible program, heaven and hell side by side, and find out what passages in Scripture contain those two words within the same paragraph, guess how many you'll find? Zero. But if you put heaven and earth, then you'll get dozens of passages that speak of heaven and earth. Why heaven and earth? Why the new heaven and the new earth? Well, we're going to watch a video by the Bible Project. And uh, um, before, I, before we do that, one more thing. Uh, on Christmas Eve, I shared a song that I used to lead all the time. Lord, I lift your name on high, you know. Uh, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, our debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. So came from heaven, and then after the resurrection was the ascension. So Jesus went back up to heaven. But the story doesn't stop there, because we're told that at the end times, when Jesus returns, he's going to come back down and establish heaven and earth. And this is what we're going to look at. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. 
And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. It's pretty cool, isn't it? A Bible project is something that you can um, just Google 
and you can watch free videos um, on any book of the Bible or any theological subject, and they have a way of uh, boiling it down to simple. So now I'm going to extend this to make it more complicated for you. <laughs> um, he, he talks about the story is bringing heaven and earth together where we will st- uh, remain for eternity with God. That's the focus of Scripture, but, but at every funeral I've always taught, you know, we celebrate people going to heaven to be with God in some other place, you know? And, uh, and so what's, what's going on here? Paul, the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus said to the criminal on his side when he's being crucified, today you will, surely you'll be with me in paradise. And so, so Jesus did talk about a place where we go and we receive a heavenly body or spiritual body, one that we could recognize each other, uh, but it's not our permanent body. It's sort of like our body on loan, like if you take your car into the garage and then they have to work on it for a while, they give you a car on loan until your permanent car is fixed and then you get that back brand new in a sense so our spirits will go to heaven to be with jesus when we die in the bible or theology theologians call that the intermediate state but we are at home with jesus and even paul said i it's better for me to be out of this body and with christ better better by far and so he didn't fear death it's true our spirits will go to heaven, uh, but when Jesus returns upon his second coming, then the dead in Christ will rise out of the graves with their bodies and will reunite with their heavenly body, bring together. They'll be brought together as well. And their, our physical bodies, the one that we're in right now, will be perfected and will be permanent for all eternity without sin, without ever having to gra- grapple with he- unhealth or death. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So pretty much we want to bring heaven down to earth, and that's the focus even now. So the Bible talks about the new heaven and the new earth. Well, where will this be? And Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So it talks about this eternal place we'll be in um, as a new heaven and new earth. Uh, and in the same place in Revelation, a few verses later, talks about the new Jerusalem. Or is it earlier? Yeah, it's the next verse. Then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. It was coming down to be with his people. And this is after the resurrection of the bodies and and those who have died come down with Jesus to set up the new heaven and new earth. Uh, And so we we get this picture of heaven as being some ethereal place where we're floating around and there are little angels playing harps and what do we do? Just float around for a while, you know? It's not that way at all. It'll be very much like earth, but perfected. Uh, They will be his people there, and God himself will be their God with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. 
So again, we will not so much go up to heaven, but heaven or New Jerusalem will come down to earth. Um, the New Jerusalem will be unlike the first Jerusalem, though, that we've heard about in Israel, in that it'll be absent of the temple. The, the Jews and Israelites went to the temple to meet with God, but there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem or the New Heaven and New Earth. Why? Because in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Okay, so the Lord is our temple or the tabernacle. And what will this new city look like? Hold on tight because this is exciting. The angel who talked with me had a mass, uh, measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadium length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. Wow, isn't that awesome? The description measurements of this new city are, shall we say, less than inspiring. I mean, hey, did you know we're going to live forever in a giant Rubik's cube? Well, this is typical of the book of Revelation. As we've, we've studied the book of Re Revelation recently, we know that Revelation is symbolic. And so, no, I don't think it'll be a big cube we're living in. Um, and the Jews would have heard this, and they would have, it would have hearkened them back to the temple, which was a giant cube. But this time, all of new, new heaven and new earth are made up of this giant cube, symbolically, in the Old Testament, they went to the cube or the temple to meet God, but in the New Jerusalem, God will be present in every square inch. You don't have to go anywhere. He'll be everywhere in fullness. So that's what the symbolism there means. Additionally, God's presence there will be the only source of light that, we'll be, that we'll, we will need. In verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. God the Father, God the Son will be the light of this new heaven, new earth. Our eternal home is described symbolically and yet a third way in Revelation, a garden or a new garden within the new Jerusalem, the new city. Verse one, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on one side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops, on each side, I should say, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And so as they heard this revelation, it would have hearkened them back to the Garden of Eden. A, a river ran through Eden, and there was the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which kept them alive eternally or was supposed to. So Revelation be ends uh, in, in our Bible where Genesis began in a perfect garden. And gardens are great in the midst of cities. If you've been to Kansas City or Chicago, you know, they have a lot of parks and little gardens and just places of refuge and respite away from the big buildings and the noise. And so this is kind of the idea here, a garden in the middle of the city. The river was running through the center of the city, as it did in Eden, and the tree of life gave permanent health 
eternal health to its residents where there'll be no more death or sickness. As Adam forfeited uh, the relationship, his relationship with God through his disobedience resulting in death, so the second Adam, Jesus, restored relationship with God through his obedience resulting in eternal life. So in other words, Jesus came, he was born to reverse the curse of Adam and Eve, their disobedience. That was his plan from the beginning. He came to reverse the curse um, and give, give us access once again to the tree of life, which will give us eternal life. You remember Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They had no more access to the tree of life after their disobedience. Thus death entered the world. Well, now as people of God, we have access to the tree of life. We are eternally alive. Okay, so uh, what will we do during for eternity? I mean, it sounds kind of boring a little bit. Won't we get bored? No, because we will do exactly what Adam and Eve were originally created to do. Genesis 1, God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will reign, also reign with him, with Christ. Revelation 22, John saw, and they will reign forever and ever, speaking of believers. Well, how will we reign? Will we sit on our royal rumps with our royal crowns and give royal commands out, bark commands out to people? No. Jesus taught us what it means to reign or to lead. And you know what this is, right? Mark 10, it's in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus, um, when John and James, the, the sons of thunder, their brothers, when they were arguing, or they, they went up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and left hand when you come into your glory, Jesus? We're your, we're your favorites anyway, right? Well, the other 10 caught wind of this and they became indignant, it says. And then Jesus sat his 12 disciples down and he said, you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Get this in your thick skulls. He didn't say that. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus taught what servant leadership means, what reigning means. The one who reigns will be the one who serves. Jesus also modeled this kind of servant leadership during his earthly ministry. And the Apostle Paul sums that up in Philippians 2. He says, In your relationships with one another now, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being the very nature of God, did not consider himself equal, equal with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself of all of his authority and power that he had prior to coming to earth. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So, what are we going to do? We have to have the mindset of Christ Jesus who chose to live his life serving others rather than serving himself. To get more specific, in Philippians 2 he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do what? 
do nothing. Man, we do fall short. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Have the mind of Christ. But we would rather choose to enforce our will on people. We want to be leaders. We want to be voted as class president. We want people to notice us. We want people to see it our way. We want, uh, we want people to not tell us what to do. We want to tell others what to do. We would rather be the boss than the employee or the servant. Have you ever had to submit to someone in authority whom you're convinced was your inferior? We all, we've all been there. As teenagers, we perhaps looked at our parents that way. Our parents don't have a clue. They don't understand. Now that we're parents, we know we understand, kids. We do. You're inferior. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You're not. Uh, uh, or a supervisor at work who had obviously been promoted beyond his or her ability. You had to submit to them or a coworker who misunderstood you or falsely accused you, or maybe a teammate who, who disrespected you or ignored you, talked behind your back, or maybe a spouse whose ignorance was matched only by his or her stubbornness. Um, we've all had to submit. And when we do, we must take heart from Christ's example. Everyone Jesus came into contact with was his inferior. You see, he was God in the flesh, and yet he took on the role of a servant. He served his disciples. He served his parents. He even served those who didn't know him, who were broken and lost, his enemies. He served even Judas, washed his feet. Yet he still served them, offered them his love and respect. And I remember when I was a kid, I think I told, I can't remember if I told this a couple weeks ago, but it came to mind again. There was a college professor at Houghton College in New York, upper New York, a Christian college who taught my father uh, Bible classes, and he discipled my dad. When my da after my dad accepted Christ and went to Houghton, he had a tremendous influence on my dad. Well, this professor... He eventually retired, and he developed cancer, and so he had to come and stay at our house once, once a week for several weeks, and he took my bedroom. He slept in my bed, and I, I was relegated to the couch, which was okay. But every time this guy came, uh, this renowned Bible professor, um, he was the epitome of Christ. He would sit me down, and he would talk to me, a teenager, and he would ask me questions and, and he would take interest in what I was doing and he made me feel like, wow, no adult outside of my parents ever took this much interest in me. And when he finally had his last treatment in, in our area, um, he left me a long note, a personal note, and no one had ever done that before, much less this renowned Bible professor who, he, he, he served me he met my needs. He, he was interested in my life, and it blew me away. And I remember crying after he left because I, I didn't even know him that well, but he was such a Christ-like example. He took on the role of a servant even as a respected leader in his college. 
From the very beginning, humans were created to serve God. Um, Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We were created originally to work, to tend to the, God's creation. He said, you are to reign over this. Work, I want to retire. I want to kick up my feet, sit around and relax, and watch the big screen. Uh, no, you don't. You don't want to do that because that will get really old really fast. I know that from my father. After he retired, they went to Florida every winter for a couple of months, and my dad absolutely went nuts down there playing shuffleboard. He said, I got to get out of here. You know, he felt like it was Florida hell for him because he was lacking purpose down there, just sitting around the pool, walking along the beach. He needed meaningful purpose. I've talked to many retired folks and they've let me know in one way or another that people never lose their need for purpose because God created us to serve and to work and find our purpose in that. It's very fulfilling. Even if you're like one of, one of, one of our kids, you know, they, they, a couple of them do pictures and videos and, um, and they do this for, you know, for cash, for money even. And and they do it, and they work really, really hard editing their pick their product. And once it's completed, and they give it over to the bride or to the family or to the graduate, then it's very fulfilling to see the end product. Or folks like to redecorate their homes, repaint the rooms, and when it's done, it's fulfilling. Or um, a lot of people like to work in their wood shops and create things, and when it's done, it's very fulfilling. We work at our music, our piano, our violin. Uh, we work at things like this. And when we perfect the piece, then it's very fulfilling. We work our gardens. We clean the kitchen. We decorate our house for Christmas. And we love going home at night with the Christmas lights on. It's very fulfilling. We work at meals, have people over. And when we do so, it's fulfilling, so I've heard. And then we... Uh, we even work on our bodies, and that's very fulfilling, so I've heard as well. Um, we, we, some, some of us even work on our tennis game. It's very fulfilling. We care for kids and grandkids and pets, and it's hard work. It's hard work. It tires us out, but it's very, very fulfilling. Our highest priority, though, is to work for the kingdom of God by serving one another. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's common in a given church that more women are serving within the church than men. And one husband changed the words in that hymn that day. Instead of take my life and let it be, he's saying take my wife and let me be. But we're all cre created to serve and work in the church. But does this mean we have to serve Christ's church above all other commitments we have? We should be in the church every time it's open like some people are, and some people are, even though they're not employed here. Well, the answer would be yes and no. And here's the reason. Everything is spiritual. From Monday to Saturday, that is spiritual. We are the church. Wherever we go, we're little pockets of Christ's good news, just like you saw in the video with those little crosses, you know. 
Colossians 3, Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. First Peter, Peter said, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised. In all things, in everything, we are to serve the Lord. It doesn't say, above all things, you must work in the church and that will determine your spirituality. It said, no, in all things, wherever you are, you are to glorify the Lord, making him known to the lost. We are to be Christ, those little crosses in the circle. We're to be like Jesus, and little parts of heaven go with us because the kingdom of God goes with us, because Christ goes with us. Look for opportunities to serve. Ephesians 5, Paul says, make the most of every opportunity because these days are evil. If we neglect to have the mindset of Christ then, we will automatically, and I've been there many times, default to our own self-interests above the interests of others. We'll pursue our selfish ambitions, as Philippians warned us not to, because that's what we always default to, all of us. And that's why we have to put on the mind of Christ. We have to intentionally do so. If we do not um, do so, then our commitment to the body of Christ, to each other, our commitment will be optional. We won't be committed to each other. We won't be praying the prayer of unity that Jesus prayed for us. We'll be praying the prayer of independence. What do I want to do? Our commitment to presenting Christ to the world will be rare. But for those who put on the mind of Christ and adopt the mindset of Christ Jesus, then they will bear much fruit for the kingdom, even while they're on earth. And that fruit will be extended into eternity when they will be rewarded. They'll be rewarded for what they do on earth in the name of Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus in the end times when we're standing before him. The master Jesus will reply, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Now I will put you in charge of many things in my new heaven and new earth. Come and share in your master's happiness. Revelation 22, look, I'm coming soon, Jesus said. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. And we're thinking, oh my gosh, if God... If, if what I do will be exposed before everyone and before Jesus, I'll be highly embarrassed. Well, you know what? All our sin will be forgotten. Our sin will be remembered no more. Only that which we do for Christ will be remembered. It's sort of like an a, a athlete at the end of a season or at the end of his career, they put together um, a sports highlight video. And then when you watch one of those, like of Michael Jordan, there is not one shot that he misses. And in the entire video, he hits all these amazing shots. Or, or you take a baseball player, Willie Mays, you know, and he never strikes out. He's always getting line drives or home runs or stealing first and whatever, you know. They're amazing because only what we do for, for Christ will be remembered on Judgment Day. Everything else will be forgotten and forgiven. And that's good news for us, right? Um, some highlight videos will be short and some will be longer. So that's the reward, day of rewards in heaven. 
uh, because many, many of you are serving all the time, doing serving people all the time in the name of Christ. And so their reward day will be like, yeah, many crowns type of thing. Um, so what happens after from the grave to the sky? We talked about that on Christmas Eve, and this is the last point. From the grave to the sky, what will happen then? We don't just fly up like this and go to heaven. Ah, I'm here, I got my wings. No, what will happen is those in the intermediate heaven with a heavenly body will one day reunite with a resurrected body. It will be perfected and the two will become one, just like heaven and earth. And we'll live in the new heaven and new earth. We'll live in the new Jerusalem. We'll live in the restored garden and we'll co-reign with Christ by serving him and serving each other. And that's what leadership looks like. And there'll be nothing more fulfilling and satisfying than that. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, I am so excited that you have called me to this church some, and, and our family, my family as well. Um, I thank you, Lord, that you've called us to this church. What a privilege it is to serve here in McPherson and Countryside Covenant. Thank you for all those who are faithful servants in our midst and therefore faithful leaders co-reigning with you on earth even. I pray, God, that we continue to exercise our gifts, Lord, that which we'll use for all eternity, which will bring us great satisfaction and will please you as we worship you through our gifts. I pray this in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen.